Hi guys, thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Chasing Heroin on this day. Before we get into today's episode, which I know you guys are going to love, I want to apologize to everybody. I know we missed a week last week of releasing an episode. We release episodes every other Thursday and I feel so bad, but so I'm just going to be totally honest with you guys. You know, I also, I reference it on the show a little bit. I run my fitness studio and at the moment we're still under some you know, fairly restrictive legislation in the state of California. And it's been a year of this, of this legislation. And it's just been really challenging. Um, we've been pivoting and adapting and going outside and going inside. And it just feels like pushing like a giant stack of weight uphill for like over a year. (laughs) And Skylar and I haven't taken any time off and it's just been tough. So, and last week I kind of hit a wall with all of it and I didn't have the mental capacity or the, emotional capacity to sit down and and edit an episode, frankly. So took a week off and um, we're back this week though. And uh, we'll be back on track. I just kind of needed a, like a mental health break. So I know you guys are going to love today's episode. Today we interview Azrael Ford. He was recently released from the California prison system. He did 22 years. He's actually done more than that if you total it up. But the last term was 22 years. And he is sharing his story very bravely and openly and is completely honest and forthright about institutional life. But also he ultimately gained some institutional insight and there was real evolution of his life in prison, which he shares about. And he also is sharing, he's in a work release program. And so you can hear there are actually other people like in the room with him while he's sharing. And I just, I think it's really amazing that he was able to sit down and in that living situation, still be really brave and really honest and open. So when you do hear a little bit of talking in the background, that's what that's from. He's still in a work release program. So you guys are going to love this episode. As always, please let me know what you think. You know, y'all's feedback is also what kind of keeps me going. This is a huge part of my recovery too. And so when I hear from you guys that you're enjoying the episodes, like I can't even tell you what that does for just like my mood and my state of mind. And when you guys post about it on social media, it helps the show. It makes Kim and I both so proud. So share on social media. Let me know what you think. Of course, I know we always ask you guys to write a review. I would love for you to write a review. We haven't had one in a while and reviews move us up in the uh, iTunes algorithm. So thank you guys so much for everything. Thank you for being a part of this journey with me and with Kim. And let me know what you guys think of this episode. Okay, guys, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Chasing Heroin on this day. My name is Janine, and my sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. And my name is Kimberly Walker. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm here to ask questions of our guests and Janine that listeners may have and change people's attitudes and perspectives on recovery and addiction. So today, guys, we are so excited. We have, this is a longtime friend of my sponsor, Rachel, who you guys have heard on the show before. We have Azrael Ford. As was recently released from prison after doing 22 years for assault with a firearm. He now has 16 years clean and sober and is committed to sharing his story and experiences in the hope that it may help others. So Az, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for having me. My name, my name is Azure Ford. Everybody just calls me Big Az because I weigh about 300 pounds. And uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, 
you know, like like you said, you know, I just served a 22-year sentence in prison for assault with a firearm. And, you know, I went into prison. I was a drug addict. I was an alcoholic. I was a repeat offender. That was my fourth term in prison. And, uh, you know, like, I just went in there. And I, I grew up in Ocean Beach, California. You know, it's a little area in San Diego, Southern California. You know, it's a cool little beach community. But it's one of those communities where, like, drugs is pretty much the norm. Like, I remember everyone my parent or every one of my friend's parents they were either drug addicts or drug dealers and you know it was an environment that was rife with violence and like we grew up in it you know a culture where me and all of my friends it was about you know being that tough like hyper masculine kid and so like for us weekends were drinking fighting or looking for girls of course you know stuff like that it was like that typical brutal beach boy thing and you know like by the time we were 18, every one of my friends had been in juvenile hall, jail, or prison. And, uh, you know, so that's, that was the environment I grew up in. Like, I started doing speed at probably about 12 years old. And then 13 years old, I started doing it with my dad, you know, because I went to my father and told him, like, hey, you can either give me speed or I'm going to go out and get on the streets. It's your choice. What do you want to do? And he was like, well, you know, he didn't really know how to be a parent because he was caught up in his addiction. So he goes, well, okay, son, I'm going to give it to you. So I started doing, you know, like I said, 12 and at 13, I was getting it from my dad. And then, you know, it was me and all my friends, we grew up tweakers, you know, we were young kids and, you know, think we, we knew what we, we thought we knew what it was to, you know, to live in the world. And so that was pretty much my life as a juvenile. And it was like, I went to juvenile hall at like 13 years old. And I was in and out until I was 18. At 18 years old, I was in, in county jail, like pretty much. I turned 18 in Rancho del Campo, which is a juvenile facility in San Diego. Uh, I was released from that, released from probation because I was 18. And within two months, I was in county jail. And I turned, well, I turned 18 in juvenile hall and then I was 18, released from probation and then went to jail shortly after the release from that. And uh, it's just been in and out my whole life, you know, like I'm 49 and I probably spent a combined 30, God, I want to say 35 years incarcerated, you know, somewhere in that range. And uh, the whole time it was just drugs and alcohol. You know, I get out and it was speed and it was, you know, drinking and it was fighting, and just a lot of violence. And it was just, I thought that that was my life. I thought that was a lifestyle. I thought that's how you live. You know, it's like people who were going to nine to fives, they had it fucked up. If I can cuss, I'm, I don't know if I can cuss on this radio. You can, totally. They had it fucked up because it's like, oh, you don't know what life is about. You know, I mean, life is about going out there, getting yours, living free and living wild and having fun. Yeah. You know, and then that's, you know, this last sentence, you know, like that one, was 40, they gave me 29 years. And I was like, whoa, you know, she just gut punched me. And, uh, you know, I don't know how deep you want me to go into like my past, you know, because I can go into everything like, we started a gang when I was probably about 13, 14, you know what I mean? Called the crazy white boys out of Ocean Beach. And, uh, you know, we thought we were on top of the world, you know? And from that group, you know, everybody branched out and they've gone different routes. You know, I really, that I can't really talk about because that's somebody else's life, right. you know? Let's get into what happened in January, February of 1999 that led to your incarceration. I don't know the details on that. What happened? Okay. So in January, February 19, I had just been released from doing a violation at, at Donovan. 
And I'd gotten out and I thought, okay, I'm going to change my, because every time it's like weird, you know, it's like one of those, you know, in my addiction, like every time I go to jail, I'm going to get out this time and it's going to be better. But I'd start to drink and I'd start to use again. It usually was never better. It actually got worse. So I got out and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to this underwater welding school. I'm going to do good. I'm changing my life and I'm not doing speed anymore. You know, I quit doing speed. I'm all. But I can drink, you know, I can drink. I, I drink socially. I'm ne- I've never been a social drinker, but I've always told myself I was a social drinker. Right. So I go to this party in Ocean Beach and we're watching football. And uh, what had happened was some words were exchanged between me and a friend, right? Over just something that happened. Uh, I grabbed another friend of ours, Grant's kid. He was like my little nephew. And I'm like, what's up, little bro? And I lifted him up, but I was so drunk, I didn't realize that I was standing under a ceiling fan. So I stuck his head into the ceiling fan. Oh. He had a helmet on, you know, he had a little biker helmet on, and it didn't hurt him, but it scared him. And I was like, oh, I'm all, Grant, take your kid. Like, dude, I'm sorry. Well, Grant's roommate, who was another friend of mine for like 17 years, he started piping in and he was like, oh, you're fucking up, Baz. You know, look at you, you're always getting drunk. I'm all, dude. You know, shut the hell up. It was an accident. You get over it. And then so me and him started to exchange words. And I told him, look, Donnie, if you want to continue to talk to me like this, I'll come back tomorrow. Because where I grew up, this is how we always dealt with our issues. We'll go to the park and we'll fight it out. You know, we're not going to, you know, like normal people just be like, oh, well, we won't be friends. Or we'll shake hands. Ours, we'll go to the park and we'll box and whoever wins, wins. And they're the right person. So I told him, I'm going to leave. I'll come back tomorrow when I'm sober. And then if you want to continue to talk like this, we'll go to the park. So when I walked outside, I heard something. And I turned around and I saw Donnie with the baseball bat. So in my mind, I immediately jumped to the conclusion, oh, he wants to come at me with the baseball bat. So I rushed him. And I took the bat from him and I hit him in the head with it. And then when he went down, I hit him again. (laughs) You're going like this. It's like, But I hit him again. And when I hit him that second time, I always remember he bounced like I hit him that hard, you know, like I because I have no I had no filters on like, you know, the extremity of how far violence can go. And then uh, a friend of mine, Joe, goes, as you got to get out of here, the cops are going to come. And I'm like, instead of sitting there and going like, okay, I just hit my friend with the bat. I'm like, a cop are going to come. I'm out of here. So we left. And it was probably five days after that. I was calling the hospital. You know, I was I was concerned about him. You know, I was calling the hospital. But because he was in coma and it was pretty bad. But five days after that, they put a warrant out for me for attempted murder. And so I was like, oh, shit, what do I do now? You know, I'd just gotten out. I'd only been out 10 days. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, so my friend Joe, he goes, what are you going to do, dude? Because he's the one that informed me that, hey, they put a warrant out for you for attempted murder. And I'm well, I'm not going to jail, dude. You know, that not like this. I've only been out 10 days. You know, I, I want to be able to fight this. And so I went on the run. Okay. While I was on the run for that, you know, it was bad. Like, you know, the cops kicked in my mom's door four times in a week and drawing guns on her and my little nephew. And, you know, she's calling me. She's like, yeah, it's, you know, like, what the hell? And at the whole time, I'm still in denial, you know, even for that. Because for me, my criminality was all almost addictive, too, just like my drug addiction. Yeah. And I'm like, mom, you know, it's not as bad as you think. This is what happened. And the truth of the matter is I hit somebody in the head with the baseball bat and almost killed right. So I'm on the run for that. And my mom, she was asking, the police are saying they're going to kill you. They're, they're telling me that you're armed. And I wasn't at that time. But I was like, oh, really? That's what they think. And in my mind, I'm not going to let the cops shoot me. So I went to a friend's house and I got a duffel bag full of guns. And then, so now I was running around, you know, it's like things will always build up. You know, it's like 
even with drug addiction, you'll start smoking pot or drinking beer. And the next thing you know, you try doing a line at a party. And the next thing you know, that doesn't work. So you try smoking it. Next thing, smoking is worse. You try shooting it. And it just escalates. Well, it's the same thing with criminality. So now I'm on the run and I have a duffel bag full of firearms. And I'm like, I need money. And so I start, like, I've never, you know, like, it's the justification process. I'm like, oh, I'm better than this guy because I don't rob stores. I'll just kick in the door of a drug dealer and take his money. It's still right. robbery. Right. <laughs> but, so that's what I was doing. And uh, in the interim, the girl that I ended up marrying briefly, like, I was at her house and uh, a friend of hers was there. And so he had helped because I didn't know anything about computers and computers were pretty new, you know, not new, but, you know, the Internet. And I was like, hey, can you help me look up this warrant? And so he went on the computer. I thought this guy was a decent guy. And then when she comes back, we leave. And I told the guy, hey, I'll get you some beer and some, some steaks. I'm going to throw you a barbecue for helping me out. And she flipped out on me on the freeway. She goes, why did you give that guy drugs? Or, I mean, why did you offer that guy beer in the house? And I'm like, because he's your friend. And I'm like, she goes, no, but he tried taking advantage of me when you weren't around. And I was like, what? And then me again, I go, right. You know, I go from one to two. What? Why didn't you tell me then? I would have right. kicked that dude's ass and thrown him out of the house. And uh, she was like, you know, no, no, I took care of it. And I'm like, no, I'm a man. That's what I do. You know, I'll take care of it when we get back. So when we got back, he wasn't there. And along, you know, to make that long story a little bit shorter, she had two kids that were like her little brothers. They were neighbors that she used to babysit and they would come hang out at the house. And uh, so I wake up in the morning and I'd kind of taken an interest in the 12 year old. I was trying to help him out because he was like wanting to be in a gang. And I'm like, dude, look, I, even though I was in trouble, I've always tried to help people out. You know, yeah. we, always, we always do, you know, but I was like, kid, you know, there's a better life than thinking that you're in a gang, a street gang. So I wake up in the morning. I'm so short. And I see the kid bumping into walls and I tell Lena, I go, what's, what's up with the kid? And she goes, well, that asshole gave him LSD last time. Well, what kind of people you hang out with? You know, this is a 12 year old kid. And, you know, I know from experience because I was doing drugs at 12 and yeah. I, I never gave drugs to a kid. That ain't cool. So she's like, uh, you know, and so I'm like, you need to take him to this guy's house. And she's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'm like, well, you know, then me and you're pretty much done. If you're not going to take me over there, I don't want to hang out with people that hang out with people like that. So the whole time I'm drinking and I'm drinking all day. And so now it's about three o'clock in the afternoon and I'm like, I got to go, you know, I got to go. And the whole time, yeah, I think I'm on the run. And so I'm like, you know, laying low key and I'm getting rides here, rides there. I mean, it was bad. I'm wearing wigs and it's just, it's terrible. It's not a fun life. And you were in San Diego still at this I'm point? In San Diego. This was in East San Diego. Yeah. Okay. And so as we're driving over to my friend's house, she stopped at a house and I was like, who's here? And she goes, this is where that guy lives. So I'm like, oh, this is where he lives. Oh, thank you for bringing me here. And so she goes, well, I'm going to go talk to him. I'm like, oh, you're going to go talk to him. Well, I think I'm going to talk to him. And I follow her into the house. And when we went into the house, the guy opened the door and he's like, what's up? He was, you know, like, cool. Cause he thought me and him were cool. He didn't know that in my mind right now, I'm like, you know, the Terminator, I'm just looking for this guy. And when I walk in, I pulled out a 12 gauge and 44 that I had on me. And I always remember those moments where like, you know, things just kind of like, they almost like becomes a vacuum. Cause I remember he had a glass in his hand and he dropped it and it broke. And I went in there and I was like, hey, you fucking piece of shit. You know, you want to give drugs to a kid, try to rape this girl. 
but I went like, you know, I thought I was Rambo. I have the 12 gauge oh. and 44, you know, anything. They're both big guns. Yeah. And when I went with that, I was so drunk, I didn't realize that my finger was on the trigger of the shotgun and it fired. And when it fired, it scared me and I fired the pistol in the air. Luckily, I didn't hit anybody, you know, because oh. that that was like the first thing that ran through my eye. I could have killed it because the 12 year old kid was right there too. I was setting a great example, you know. Right. And that. Uh, so the guns went off and then I was like, oh shit. And I gave the guns to her. I put those in the car. And the guy's like, as if you want to kill me, just shoot him in my back. And he, he ran out of his house. So I followed him out and I went downstairs and he's like, yeah, it's just please leave. And I told him, you know, just stay away from them. And I punched him in the mouth. So I left and then it was, I went to Sean's house and I gave the guns back. I go put the guns away because I just, you know, I just fired him. I don't know what's going to happen right now. And it made the news and it, there were cops everywhere because they were like, oh, big skinheads running around with guns. You know, he's already on the run for attempted murder. He's just going crazy. And I remember we drove back and I was like, as I was dropping the kid off at, at, the, and at the girl's house. And as we're driving back, I see all these cops and there they were cops everywhere, helicopters. And I was like, oh, crap. You know? I'm like, this is all for me. And uh, I told him, kid, you have to get out here, dude, because, you know, I can't drive any closer. There are too many cops. So he got out. We go, well, the next night I was arrested, right? I went back to the house and uh, I remember we were there and I had a friend with me, Chris. And I told him, look, me and her are going to go to bed, you know, just hang out because, yeah, he was up. Like, I remember he'd done a lot of speed. I wasn't doing speed at this time. I, you know, I, again, I was like, oh, I quit. I'm better than everybody. I'm just drinking. And uh, so he did a lot of speed. He was up. And I told him, look, we're going to go to sleep. And when I get up in the morning, we'll get out of here because he had some money. And everybody was trying to get me. I was supposed to be going to Canada. I was trying to get out of California. He just, yeah. I was trying to get away so everything could die down. And I went to bed. And uh, the girl I was with, she woke me up and she goes, ah, she goes, get up. There's cops everywhere. Oh, and no. I looked out and I'm, I'm like, well, you know, he knows what to say, you know, because they had Chris out front. He went out to his car to get cigarettes and the cops had pulled him over because they saw a big guy with tattoos. And uh, I'm like, he knows what to say. You know, that's my bro. He's been in prison with me. You know, he knows the game. And so I went back to sleep and she woke me up a little bit later. She goes, yeah, there's cops everywhere. And I looked out and I was like, oh, my God. I mean, and it was like, <laughs> it was pretty, gnarly. it was like a war zone. You know, this is in San Diego. There's a can't, it's the only time in my life I've ever seen them actually land the helicopter and have it was like landed in the field. Oh my God. So I was sitting there and she's like, what do we do? And I'm like, you know, I'm all just pretend like we're not here. You know, I'm like, I, I'm like, maybe they'll go away because there's nothing else I can do at this point. And I'd given the guns back. I only have one gun on me. And I'm like, okay, you know, maybe they'll just go away, pretend like we're not home. And they're banging on the door and this is going on for hours. And they called on the phone and they were like, they were going, I, I don't really want to say the girl's name, you know, but they're like, right. you know, if you can give us a sign that you're okay, let us know. And that's like, it kind of hit me. I'm like, who do they think I am? You know, like, yeah, I don't hit her. And I'm like, really? And so she's like, what are we going to do? And I'm like, and they're not going away. And finally she got up and she went and answered her door. And she's like, what do you want? I'm sleeping. I work late night. And they're like, you know, we want to come in and search your house. And she's like, absolutely not without a warrant. Well, I don't know what happened because I was hiding. And uh, I remember it's kind of my joke. Like I was in the closet. <laughs> so the cops come through and I, I always remember that. Like 
they they come through and they did a search and I remember the cop's gun hitting me in my head. Oh my god! Because I was in the closet and they poked me in the head. And I was like, and they left and I thought, oh my god, you know, they they I'm good. I'm I'm really good at being a, a criminal, like <laughs> getting away with this. But I didn't realize that they do a secondary search and they came oh. back and that they found me. Okay. And that's always my jokes. I'm all that was the day they they. I came out of the closet, even though I'm not. I have it. Because they pulled me out of the closet, so I was clowned about that. But they took me out and they arrested me. And we went down there and uh, they took me to the police station in, in San Diego. And that was another part too, because I remember I had friends that had been looking out for me, and one of them lived right across the canyon from us. And as they brought us out, I was watching them converge on his house. And I was like, oh, man because they knew he had been hiding me out. He's actually doing a life sentence right now too, but behind something else. Okay. And, uh, I just remember watching that and I was like, fuck, you know, like really that's the kind of stuff I bring down on my friends, you know? Yeah. So they took me to jail and uh, like, I remember the cop came in and they mm -hmm. had me and the dude, Chris, we were in a tank together and this, um, he was a, a police officer from the beach. He was the guy investigating the baseball bat case. Okay. And he came in, he was asked, you want to talk to me? And I'm absolutely not without a lawyer. And he goes, well, I'm going to give you 50 years to life. And I flipped out because I still, you know, I thought I was a tough guy. I'm fucky, can't give me shit. I got to go to court. You know, my friend's looking at me like, dude, how can you be so just like calm? And I'm like, screw this. And so I go to county jail. And uh, hey. the first court hearing, they dropped the attempted murder and they changed the charge to aggravated mayhem, which is still a life top case. Wow. And, and I had, I started with three cases and an attorney came to visit me and he goes, look, guys, he was a public defender. And he goes, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do as, I've never met this guy. Okay. What are we going to do, sir? And he goes, we're going to go in and ask the DA to drop this charge and give you a sentence of 25 to life. And I go, really? Oh, that's what we're going to do. Huh? I go, well, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do, sir. And he's like, what? I go, I'm going to push this button. I'm going to tell the deputy to come get you out of this room because if you're in here in five minutes, I'm going to kick your fucking ass. Oh, and he was like, what? I'm not going to sign the deal for 25 years and to life, you know, with the life. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I'm trying to help you out. I'm going to get out of here. So we went and got, I got an attorney, you know, and I wasn't, you know, I'm not a rich guy, you know, but I got an attorney, but and he did a really good job. So I go to court. I'm in the county jail and fight my case. And uh, they ended up breaking my case into eight counts. And so I was looking at like 176 years to life when I went to trial. And, uh, I went to trial and my attorney's like, yeah, if they find you guilty of anything, they can give you 25 life. I just have to let you know that. And the whole time, like, this is to backtrack a little bit. This is my introduction to heroin, actually. Right. I was in the county jail. And at this time, the girl that I had married... I'm getting ready, like, we're not getting along because I'm getting ready to go away for a long time. And I'm telling her, get away from me. You know, she's pretending like she wants to be this loyal girl. <laughs> and then, yeah, because that's, but looking <laughs> all this time and it's all this. And somebody goes, hey, Az, do you want to try this heroin? And I'm like, where I grew up, people didn't do heroin. You know what I mean? Okay. It was like, as a kid, if you did heroin in OB, you got ran out. You know, it's not okay. like that anymore, but back in the day, that's how it was. So I'm like, no, nah, I don't really do it. And he goes, dude, just try it. So I did it. And I snorted some. And I remember it made me feel like just sicker than I've ever been. I was laying on my bed. I was spinning. I'm like, this shit's crap. Who would want to do this stuff? You know, it's miserable. And uh, so I didn't do it again, you know, in the county jail. And so now I go to court and all of that. And they, they come at me and my attorney's like, look, 
you know, any case that they, if they fight, if they find you guilty of any count, you can get 25 to life. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, I got to fight this. And they ended up coming at me with one more deal right before trial. They said 28 years, you'd be 28 years without the life case. And I just couldn't do it because in yeah. my mind, I was like, I didn't do anything wrong because in the culture that I'd grown up in, what I did was right. And I told Jerry, I'm like, I can't do it, dude. I can't. There's no way in hell I can sign a piece of paper for 28 years of my life. And he's like, he goes, I get it. You know, and he was like, let's do it. I go, let's go to trial. Oh so God. we go to trial. And uh, I just remember they paint, you know, they paint a really good picture. In there, yeah. You know, in <laughs> Because the DA gets to go twice and, you know, anything that they missed on the first round, they, they make sure that they get it on the second round. And so, you know, I was this monster and just, I was this evil person. And I'm like, really, that's what they think. I mean, I thought I was doing a, you know, a civic duty and looking out for this kid. Uh, so I went and they found me guilty of assault of firearm. Uh, negligent discharge of a firearm, fell into possession of a handgun, fell into, fell into possession of a shotgun. And I was acquitted on the other on the count of aggravated mayhem and the jury hung on the other three counts for the baseball bat case because each case had four counts the baseball okay. bat case was four counts and the guns were four counts and so i was like oh what does that mean and my attorney's like we'll have to see as you know like we don't know yet you know we'll wait till sentencing and for some reason they you know the probation department because when you go to to trial they have to do a probation report even though i was on parole and the probation department recommended 29 years without a life top and I was like oh that's kind of cool you know there's no life in it you know I didn't have to go yeah. forward I had, I had a set date and so I go yeah. and they sentenced me and you know it was just one of those things because I that was the last time I cried you know what I mean yeah. I remember I came back from I came back from court and uh I called my sister and I remember I was just like I at that time you know I, I didn't cry I was just strong face just stoic just do the whole thing and I called her and I was just like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be there to be an uncle for my nephew. And I broke down for like two minutes. And then oh, I, was just, I, hung the phone, I got to go. I hung the phone up. Uh, this guy, Boston Bob, came and he goes, as you're hurt, dude, eat these. I didn't know what they, I didn't even ask what they were. I just ate them with a handful of morphine pills. And then I beat like three people up in the tank that night because I thought that would make me feel better. And then so that's, you know, it. It went there. It's like, and then you wake up in the morning and you just, I have to do this. I can't change it. There was nothing that was going to take this. I had to do it. And so I, you know, like, it's regardless of what anybody thinks, you know, people like, oh, we feel better. Like, hey, I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? I don't care how anybody feels. I have to do this. I have to wake up every morning in here for the next 20 something years and, and make yeah. sure that you know, my needs are taken care of. So I do that. I get to state prison and I ended up at Calipatria. Right. And I was there and I was there about a month and I uh, moved in with this uh, LWAP. That means life without the possibility of parole. Guy okay. snapped. Really good guy. And so I'd been in his cell for about a month after that first month there. And he goes, he goes hey, hey, bro, you want to do some heroin? And I'm like, I don't really do heroin, dude. And he goes, all right. I'm like, but fuck it, I'll do it. I mean, I got all this time to do. And what it <laughs> really caught me with it in the back of my head, I remember when I did it, even though I felt sick, that I didn't care about nothing. You know I mean, that, like on the heroin, everything was numb. I didn't care that I was looking at all this time. I didn't care I was about to divorce this girl. Yeah. I was just like, damn, I was sitting there numb, painless. You know, not, not just physical pain, but mental pain too, and spiritual pain was gone. So I go, yeah, let's do it. So I started snorting, I mean, the smallest piece of heroin ever. And I would get really high off of it. Like, oh, 
not realizing that, you know, that's why I call it the devil's drug because it yeah. starts small. A month later, it's double what you started with. A month after that, it's double that. And then, so I started doing that and I'd always justify it. Well, I don't slam it. So I'm better than everybody because I just snorted. Yeah. And so we do that and that. Pretty soon, you know, there's the whole part of the whole prison world where that came into play because then pretty soon my celly starts, he, he hooks up with somebody in there and, you know, now we have more than enough, you know, yeah. like an abundance of heroin in there. And uh, that's when the whole, the, you know, I get like bamboozled into the whole prison politic thing, you know, and I was no right. big, I mean, but they come to me and they were like, yes, you know, do you want to, uh, you know, we want you to participate. We want you to run this building. And I'm like, all right, cool. You know, and, and that was, this was just the regular guys in the yard, you know, just the, the, you know, the guys that you always hear about in the movies, those guys weren't there. You know? Yeah. But I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And then it was within a month that, that somebody goes, well, hey, the guy that has the yard, we're going to get rid of him. We want you to run it. And I was like, you know, well, I'm kind of a kid. You know, I don't really think that I have the experience to do it. You know, you know well, we want you to do it. And I'm like, well, okay, if you want me to do it, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it my way. And, uh, you know, that just, you know, I actually do a little play on TV, mm -hmm. uh, one of those San Quinn things about that, you know, called yeah. the ride of the Phoenix. But so I started getting into the prison politics and stuff yeah. like that. There's, you know, more violence, violence perpetuates violence. And you think that that's what will, that while this is going on, my heroin addiction is just is getting bigger and bigger. Oh and God. now I ended up moving out from the guy's snap because I go, if I'm going to run, if I'm going to run the yard, I don't want the heat to come back to you because I know what you have going on. And so I moved out and I moved in with this other skinhead, with another skinhead. And then, so we were getting high together and he was slamming and I would snort it. And I remember one day, like, we do the same amount, but he's high and I'm just sitting there because now, I, you know, I'm like in full blown, you know, I'm a junkie. I'm like, I, yeah. it's be normal. But I was like, how are you high? And I'm not. Somehow he burned me, even though I know that we did the same amount, the same stuff. He burnt me. And he's like, yeah, he goes, the reason is your tolerance is so high. The only way you're going to feel it is if you shoot it. I'm like, well, I'm not doing this stuff just to do it. Let's come on, break out that needle. And so I started slamming heroin. And that went on for about a year and a half. Oh when I was, was doing about a street gram of heroin a day in prison, which is a lot. And, uh, you know what I mean? So I did that. And then, like, one day my points dropped. And so I was going from level four to level three. And I was like, oh, okay. And in my mind, I was like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be doing heroin every day now. I'm not going to get it every day. You know, it's not going to come to me for free. And so I transferred. I went to Ironwood. And then that's where, like, I think we were talking. You asked me how much. Yeah. You know, that wasn't the, that wasn't the big kick, you know what I mean? Cause I kicked okay. and then uh, I started doing more, you know, at Ironwood. I found another route and was getting it at Ironwood. And uh, so we were doing the heroin there and drinking a lot and fighting. And then uh, me and a friend, we tried, we wanted to get back to Donovan cause it was at home, it was San Diego. You know, you want visits, everybody in prison wants visits. You know, and we were like three hours away. So we, we came up with this plan, like, okay, we're going to go tell the doctors, yeah. that, you know, and it didn't work. They sent him to Donovan and they sent me to a prison in San Luis Obispo. And when I got there, you know, there was like an unwritten prison rule that for a white guy couldn't be there. So when I got there, I jumped on somebody right when I got there. And I attacked somebody and put them in the hospital. 
And then I went to the hole and luckily there was a lady back there, a counselor who really liked me, you know, and she was like, Az, what's the problem? You know, and I said, I just want to be home. So she sent me to Donovan. Oh. And the whole time, you know, this time I'm still in my prison addiction. And so I get to Donovan and I was there. And I remember the first day of Donovan, we get there. And uh, am I going too far in the story? No, no, you're no, fine. No, you're you're fine. I am curious, though. I do have one question. Were there days when you couldn't get heroin, though, and you were sick? There had to have yeah. been. Did you have it yeah. every day? Oh. Oh, oh no no there were days yeah there are days you go through like usually it would hit like saturday was a good day sunday was a good day yeah monday was a cool day tuesday it was starting to get a little bit slimmer wednesday it would gone thursday and friday would suck yeah. and you know then there were sometimes the lockdowns and like with the you know just the pains and i'd call it the shaky leg syndrome where the legs yeah. are just in your up walk pacing back and forth and and there, what I do is I'd make wine or something to help ease the pain. So I'd be drinking oh, the whole time. Yeah. And I was drinking in there the whole time too, you know, making yeah. wine and fighting. And there, I mean, there are a million stories I can tell you right. about the exploits of prison, you know, but I don't want to glorify prison because it's. Right, right, stuck. right. But so, yeah, there were times where you'd be sick for a couple of days and be like, oh, I'll never go through this again. This is fucking miserable. But then somebody would be like, bam, hey, we just got, you know, there's a new batch in you. Well, shoot me some, you know, let's get out yeah. of this party. Yeah. You know, and, so, and a lot so of it was how just did, like, How did you end up in San Quentin? How did you get there? Hey, that was, what had happened was, I went, because there's still, like, so I went from Ironwood to Donovan, or from Ironwood to uh, CMC to Donovan. CMC is where I jumped on the guy, went to Donovan. Donovan sent me to Folsom. I was there five weeks, right? And, you know, because there's all the, the addiction in there. Like my first day at Donovan, I was, somebody goes here and gave me a bunch. So I'm shooting heroin. And then like, I was there a week and I hit a bunch of drugs. So I had a bunch of drugs. Yeah. And then, so I get, but they didn't want me there. So like five weeks later, I was on a bus and sent up North. And then I went mm -hmm. from Folsom, High Desert. That's where I got clean. Was at High Desert. That was before, okay. and because uh, I went from High Desert to Solano State Prison, from Solano State Prison to CMC again, and back in the hole, right? Because there were a bunch of hole trips in between this. From there to Chuckawalla, and then from Chuckawalla, I went to San Quentin. Okay. And by that time, I'd already been clean for God. Uh, eight years or so oh I mean, how did you yeah, uh, how did you um so you got clean at, did you say high desert high desert yes was that a conscious thing or it didn't you didn't have access to it for so long that you're like eh, f it i'll just get clean like what was no, how did that no happen? i was still getting it there right i was getting it there and it wasn't as much as before right because it was like the prison is so far away and it was a conscious thing and that's like i tell the story about on a thing called life law where I caught my reflection in the mirror and it was just like, I looked at myself and like, I could just see like the change. And I'd been told that from family. I'd sent some pictures home and they were like, as they're like, you look dead. You look like you have no soul, you know? And I'm like, people know what you're talking about. But then I saw my reflection and then the reflection, I actually stopped. And, you know, that's like my story. That's how my sobriety began. Cause I was like, dude, look at yourself. You know, you're, you know, you're 15 hours from home in prison. I mean, so you don't see any family, you're doing heroin, you're just like in this miserable state, dude. Mm -hmm. And I was like, who do you want to be? And I just, I had that conversation with myself in the mirror. 
you know, and not to be offensive to women, but I was like, I'm like, dude, don't be a bitch, dude. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and that was the, the, I was like, yeah, I'm like, when I'm one that, when I set my, my mind on something, I'll use, I'm usually pretty good at it. And I was like, dude, you don't want, you know, you don't want to be a heroin addict, dude. Where you come from, you know, you're, you're not a heroin addict. And I was just like, you know, fuck. And I told my cellular, like, dude, I'm done. And he goes, no, you're not. I go, I'm done, dude. And I go here and I gave him all my tobacco. I'm like, dude, I'm, and he's like, uh, you'll want some later. And I'm like, no, dude. And so I lived, like, I would, I like to test myself, which is kind of dangerous for a lot of addicts, but I would live with the guys I partied with. I'd be like, dude, I'm not going to do it, dude. Mm. You know, I don't want to do it. So from that day forward, you never used again? Never. Wow. Never. Why? Yeah. And then, okay. and then, you know, but I, at that time, I didn't start doing any 12 steps, you know, and it was a little okay. bit later where I realized where that stuff helped me. Right. Because when I stopped, you know, and I would set, you know, I would sit there with people that I'd used before. I, and I started mixing it up for them. I'm like, if you want to do it, go ahead, dude. Yeah. And I talked a lot of shit because that, what that did is validated how I, it helped me to feel better about myself. Like, oh, I'm better now. It right. doesn't work, you know what I mean? But so let's let's move to that. Let's move to because, like we were saying with as off air, there was obviously a real evolution for you that happened in prison at some point. So now you're like eight nine years in. Let's talk about maybe when you did start doing twelve step work, and then also the Shakespeare program, and start moving into that, whichever one you want to do. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So. I left and then me. I left High Desert, went to uh, Solano, Solano Walla, and then it was uh, the Chuck Walla. I started doing some 12 step program. I started going okay. to NA. And it was just you know, like, I'd done NA and stuff my whole life going in and out, but I'd never done it for myself. I, okay. you know, I would always court and post. And so I'd be like, yeah, this is cool. You know, I, I'm here, but I don't really want to be here. And right. so I started doing that. I started doing like Toastmasters and then. Something that Chuck Wallace did with me because I guess they, they were getting ready to flip the prison, right? And so they go, well, We're going to get rid of it. They had a few of us that they were going to get rid of. And so they sent me to San Quentin. Okay. When I got to San Quentin, I was still in that mind frame. I still, you know, had this like mentality of like, you know, I'm this honorable guy because when I first got there, I was going to jump on somebody when I got there. I don't want to be here. You know what I mean? This ain't my type of spot. Oh, so that's a way to leave. If what? you get there, that's a way to get out of it. Yeah, I would just, I would, okay. I would jump on somebody and, and go to the hole and they'd be like, oh, we can't, you know, this guy's trouble, so we'll ship okay. him somewhere else. Got it, got it. I mean, and that happened a few times too. <laughs> but so I, I get to San Quentin and, but there were two guys that, well, there were a bunch of guys, but there were two guys that were really good friends of mine that were there from another prison. And they're like, no, this place is pretty cool. So I'm all right, well, I'll kick, I'll kick back. And I always remember it was on the 31st day they were making fun of me. Or even your 31 days, you ain't jumping on nobody. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you're right. So I was there, you know, and I wasn't doing anything at first. You know, I'd go to a couple, you know, NA meetings. And the guy, Danny, goes, hey, he goes, as he goes, I want you to come to this group, you know. And I'm all right, cool. And that was the first group I started there. So I went to this group. It was called Virtual Reality. And I went in there, and it was like people were sharing. And, like, I shared, you know, like my point of view, which is probably a little bit more extreme than other people's, you know, just with dealing with stuff. And, but people are like listening. And I'm like, okay, you know, people are open to hearing what I have to say too, you know? And cause I've always been, I'll listen to what anybody has to say. If I disagree with it, I was like, it didn't work for me, but I'll listen to you. And so that started going. And so I started going to little groups here and there. Well, I'd heard, I'm going to get into this, the Shakespeare now, because that's what okay. so I'd always heard. I heard about the Shakespeare group there. 
And I'm like, that's cool because even though like I'd been in trouble my whole life, I always did really well in school. You know, and I remember reading Shakespeare when I was young. I always liked it. So I'm like, oh, I'll go check this out. And uh, also there was Pretty Girl that ran it. So that was like, <laughs> you know, that was it. so I go and I walked into the group and the first time I walked in, I, I talked about this on the, like I walked into the group and I'm like, what the hell is this? Cause they were dancing around and they were making like these, this rhythm and people were coming in and they were rapping and they were, I'm like, Oh, this isn't for me. And I was like, yeah, I'm out. And people were like, Hey, what's up? They noticed me. And I was like, Oh, if I turn and walk away, they're going to think I'm afraid. Right. And that's, you know, it's that, that, you know, pride. I'm like, so I have to stay now just so they know I'm not afraid of this even though inside my knees were shaking and I'm like, I was dude, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, I was freaking terrified. Yeah. So I go in there and I'm standing in the circle and they're like, and then somebody, you know, they're doing their thing. This is my name or whatever they're singing. And then somebody called on me and I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah. And so they're like, yeah, I go into the circle and pretend to be a bee. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean a bee? And the thing is too, like, I, like it's, there was, I, I'm terrified, but always jump in head first just to be like mm -hmm. to get over the fear so i go screw it and so i started Z -Z -Z -Z, and i was running around <laughs> like i was a bee also for you and guys he, you guys can't see him as is huge so for him to be <laughs> pretending to be a bee is insane yeah. <laughs> so so i i did it and like people were laughing and you know at first you're like whoa but then I, they're not laughing at me they're laughing because of me mm -hmm. and so like it was like I was giving them this gift, right? But they were also yeah. giving me a gift. So I did it. And they're like, dude, come back, come back. And I'm like, right. So I was, because it's a drama therapy group. It wasn't just strictly Shakespeare. You know, it was, you go in there and you act out, you know, like life situations and you do stuff. And the two ladies that started it, you know, I just want to give a shout out to them. Yeah. That's Leslie Curry and Soraya Keating. Okay. Badass women, you know, top-notch women, just hey, hats off to them. But so they're like, come back. So I started going back. And at the time they were doing, they were getting ready to do uh, the life and death of Julius Caesar. And so I was in there and, you know, like they tripped out because it's like, yeah, I talk with slang and, you know, I, you know, I cuss and everything, but I can also like step back and not talk really proper. And so I, I would read and I'd like, uh, I explain like, Hey, I understand what they're saying in the Shakespeare. I really, you know, I like this stuff. And people are like, oh, dude, you, you know, like, you've never done this before. I'm like, nope, never done it before. You know, didn't do it in school. It's too cool to go to the dance in school. <laughs> but but uh, so I did it and everybody's like, dude, you'd, be, you'd play a perfect Julius Caesar. I'm like, I don't know, dude. And Julius Caesar, that, that. The part of Caesar in the life and death, it's not a main part. It's like a mid-level part. Okay. But I was like, that's still too much for me. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no, dude, you can do it. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know, man. And they go, no, you do it because you fit the role. You look like you would be a Caesar. And I'm like, all right, cool. So I did it. And uh, it was it was just, it was great. We were doing it. and But the highlight of it was there was a guy, Maverick. And Maverick's this, you know, he's a skinny black guy. Skinny, skinny, right? I'm a big white guy. Yeah. And Maverick goes, as ah, he played, he was playing Mark Anthony, you know, Mark Anthony. And uh, he goes, as ah, I just think it would be super cool if I carried you out over my shoulder after they kill you. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm down for it, dude. If you think you can pick me up, let's do it. 
they didn't want us to do it. They were like, no, no. It's, and me and him were like, dude, we're going to do it. You know, screw them what they have to say. We're going to do it. And they're like, no, we don't want you guys to do that. This is so when they kill me in the play and I'm laying there and, you know, we, me and him, we planned it out. Perfect. Like I had a bottle of Izine. He pulled it out of my hand, squirted <laughs> in his eyes. So it looked like he was crying. And so we, we'd never even tried it. And so he comes and he throws me over his shoulder and he carries me out of this, this uh, chapel auditorium. And it was like the highlight is everybody was just like, what? Cause you know, I'm a big guy. And I was like, I say that and I think it's the life of a lot of sitting because the tunics that they have were really tight and short on me. They didn't fit me. When I do it, my butt was sticking out. And the whole time when he's carrying me out, I can feel the wind on my butt. And I know there are all these people and they're looking. And I'm like, I'm embarrassed. I want to reach back and grab it and pull it down, but I'm supposed to be dead. So I can't do it. And so he, carry, he carries me out and it just it went off that hitch. And then there were some people from the newspaper that were there. They're like, man, that was just really impressive and really moving. Yeah. And, uh, that, you know, that was like a life-changing experience because it showed me what people can do, you know, yeah. when they come together and, you know, they work in teams, you know, they work as a community to build something because we, here were a bunch of guys that didn't know each other. We're all from different backgrounds. You know, we had similarities. We were all in prison. We'd all committed right. crime. A lot of us were addicts. But so we did this and we created something that that's like moved people where people are like, dude, that was like, we can't believe that you guys put on something so good and we're like yeah right and that's touching and then that was hooked like you know it was there was something about it because there were other ones where i i did some public speaking and stuff it's just like i was hooked like it was the best rush i'd ever felt it was i and sometimes i think in addiction when like for me like when i quit the drugs even though i quit for a long time there was still a space left because i wasn't getting that rush that all humans need, you know, whether it's food, whatever. And so now I experienced something that was like the greatest high had because I was sharing, you know, experience with people and people were like, they were happy to be in that moment with me. And in doing that, I found my value. And I was like, dude, I'm valuable. And the world wants me. It's like, and I want the world, you know, and that's for anybody that we all have value. And when we find that value in people, you know, that you realize like I have something to give. And so I was like, okay, cool. So, I mean, I was like lock, stock and barrel into the Shakespeare group at that point. Yeah. And, so cool. Yeah. And then it we did. Like, we, yeah. For the longest time, as it sounds like you were, you know, numbing out by using the heroin that felt quote good because you didn't have to feel anything. And when you finally let yourself feel, you actually saw what good felt like and you were giving value and getting value and seeing like, all of those people that seem to come from really different backgrounds. Um, my first supervisor used to say, whatever is most, whatever's most specific is most general. Meaning if I feel something, Janine can probably relate and feel that too. And they were able to look and watch this play and go, I can relate to him and I can relate to him too, but yet they're so different from each other. And it just sounded like such an amazing experience that honestly, like brought tears to my eyes that you felt you had value because I, I don't know you, but you had value all of your life, but you finally got to see and feel that. And that feels really great to me. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to move reputation. You guys can't see him, but he's looking around the house right now where the other guys are to see if anybody can hear what we're saying. <laughs> okay. So that's where you were. So you continued with 
you know, the Shakespeare in prison for a little bit longer? Yeah, and so I did Shakespeare and just like, we did another play. Uh, we did As You Like It, where I got to play like an elder duke. I got to play a dad, which was pretty cool because I had no kids. Yeah. And uh, even though my my daughter was like already grown, <laughs> I was like, cool, it was cool. And uh, that was fun. You know, that one was probably like, because it, it was comical, you know, and I'm, I've never been taken as like a funny guy. And so I got to be like totally just a goofball. Yeah. And there were part because I don't do drugs, but that it was when we did As You Like It, I had caught the flu. <laughs> and so I was sick and I'm like, the show must go on. So I had popped some cold medication. Uh-huh. Right. And I remember like I felt so like ditzy doing it. And I, at the end, I was like, did, did we do a good performance? And I'll do you guys deal with it? And I'm like, I can't remember anything because okay. I was my sinuses, you know. And yeah, I, like I say, I when I went straight, I tried to abstain from any type yeah. of that stuff. But sometimes yeah. you have to take medication. If, medication, you know, it's yeah. For sure. And uh, but so I did that, and then, you know, the Shakespeare. What it did too is it, it that group it allowed us because they have another part of it called parallel plays where you take the themes that you learned in the Shakespeare plays and you put them into your own life experience. And that's oh. where I did the one, it's called the uh, the Rise and Fall of the Phoenix. And that's pretty much my story about how I went to prison and the heroin and just like, you know what I mean? And violence and just how it affects a person inside. But, you know, so that was the Shakespeare. And, you know, if I can, I would like to give another shout out to another group that's at Quentin that helped me along that path. And that's called The Last Mile because The Last Mile, which is an entrepreneurship group that they came in and they kind of, that's the group I told you, they helped us learn some, some about technology. Yeah. And uh, they really like allowed us to, you know, dive into ourselves and find what we're passionate about and turn that passion and learn how that you can give that passion to the world. Mm. And so the last mile, like if people are listening to it, look them up, them and the Marine Shakespeare company, both great groups that they don't only do pr- work inside a prison but they've also brought it out here for the re-entry aspect that's so the cool last, yeah the last mile and you know and that was it it's like I didn't stop getting in trouble because even though like I was doing the groups you know like it's just sometimes your reputation follows you because at San Quentin I was thrown in the hole at the end it, right in the middle of doing parallel plays and uh so I went to the hole for a year and was transferred out, you know, and yes, like, and that's another, I have friends that were in the shoe for 30 something years locked oh in the box. Oh my God. And, and, you know, and you know, it just sucks because people think people, a lot of people, like a lot of your listeners probably don't because they may know people in prison, but a lot of people think that they're absolute monsters in prison. And there are some people like, you know, I know a guy that, he was in the shoe for 30 years and he's one of the most like humble people you've ever met a yoga teacher you know yeah. a Buddhist, and you're like dude like how did you do it and he's just yeah. like you know we do it because there's power in the mind and the heart and when you learn you know to hold on to those you know they can give you strength in times of need but so i left san quentin and uh they put me in the hole and i was fighting it like and then i went to sentinella my points went back up i went to sentinella and then what happened is i ended up Going from Sentinel back down to points to another place. They were flipping that place. You know, they were making it like where protective custody inmates were coming. So they sent a bunch of us out. I went back to Solano 
and they had the Marin Shakespeare Company there. So I got to reconnect with them there. Oh, good. And it was good seeing them. And so I started doing it there and we were getting ready to do, um, God, dude, what is it? Henry, Henry? It was, oh God, I have to think, but it was a big play. And that was, I was going to take on my biggest role. I was going to play Falstaff, which would have been pretty cool. And again, I was this time I was actually getting to play a fat, drunk, obnoxious. <laughs> and so I went over the top and it was going to be really cool. COVID hit and we all know what that turned the world into. Yeah. And so during COVID. Oh my God. What was that like in prison? Did you guys start hearing about COVID? Did you know what was going on? Was there like fear in there? Like what was happening? No, some people, yeah, because like the prison I was at, COVID didn't really affect us for a long time. Okay. It did, it did for like the visit, everything shut down. So nobody was getting it, the help that they needed. There were no self-help groups. Nobody was, oh. families, uh, the, you know, like even though I was in the dorms at the last, you know, couple of years of my prison sentence, there was still, you weren't getting that social activity because when you're in a, a dorm, it's like you're living with 200 roommates and it's not social, it's not social interaction because you see these people every day. Right. And so shut down, I couldn't see people that I knew in other buildings. And it was just like, you know, people were like, what's going on? You know, like COVID, COVID, COVID. Because, and then you'd hear about this person had a huge epidemic and people were dying and then people were dying here. And what the prison system, they didn't know what was going on. So there was a lot of movement and a lot of, well, we're going to try this and this didn't work. So we're going to try this. So you're in this state of like, uh, what's the word for it? juxtaposition or whether one of the power words of like, there's, you know, you don't know what's going on. Like, turmoil. Yeah. Like turmoil. Yeah. Turmoil. Yeah. Perfect word for it. And so that was going on. And then like me, I got this program because I'd done so much work when I got to San Quentin and started actually doing the groups. I started doing them and there was really the only benefit was personal. But then what happened after a few years, laws started to change. And now I started to get benefits from these, like, you know, oh. they, they gave me time off and I was like, Oh, okay, cool. At first they weren't, I just did it for myself. You know, right. I'm a firm believer. Do it. It doesn't really work if you don't do it for yourself. Right. And so that's the things that I'd earned off. It brought me to a point to where I could come to this program now in San Diego. It's like, wow. it's a furlough type program. Okay. And okay. So let's, so let's talk about where you are now and what you're doing. Okay, what I'm doing now is like, of course, it's work. It's like reconnecting with the world and it's getting back into the workforce. And so, you know, I just started my first job. I, my first week just ended. So I was stoked. I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm a taxpayer. I'm all, woohoo. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm the only person happy to pay taxes. You know, and it's just because of COVID still and, you know, the way that the tier system works, we're limited to what we can do because I have a lot of friends that are in the 12-step world and they're just like as when can you come out when can you come out we're ready to take you to meetings so I'm, I'm ready to go right you know, because i want right. to make that part of my life and it's just it's taking every day slow and looking at the world and going okay even though there are times that we can say like man this world seems to really suck but it really doesn't you know there's really it's there's beauty in it like that you can walk out and like right now the sun is shining it's it's That's february true. Yeah. last day of February yeah. go out and it's like it's you know it's beautiful like this is just it's an awesome existence and it goes yeah the world you know there might be hardship but we get through it 
Yeah. And so that's what I do. Like I did all because a lot of people like ask, ask, how can you be so happy, dude? Mm-hmm. You were gone so long. And I'm like, do you understand how just beautiful the world is? That's like, I get, I can eat a hamburger and it's like, uh, <laughs> like I made a little video for myself. And I'm all, it's all about the double cheeseburger, dude. <laughs> I went through, it's all about this. It's so good. And, you know, my friends were like, really? And I go, no, it's not really the burger. It's just the freedom to do that and to just yeah. just find happiness in small moments, you know, because yeah. a lot of people think it takes wealth and it takes, you know, status, you know, and that might make you happy. It might for a minute, but really the happiness just comes from the little things. You know, it's like waking up in the morning and going, all right, this hot cup of coffee, it tastes really good, you know, yeah. it's like, and just so that's where I'm at. I mean, it's like with sobriety, it's like, I can't, they will not allow us to do the 12 step program. Sure. It sucks. It's like, it makes no sense. You know, you can go to work. Why can't I go to a meeting? Right. You know? But I think it's good to, to just see that there's so many people that, you know, that I know that's what I think is like so inspiring to me because people, like, how do we inspire you? I was like, because I see people that used to be in the world I was in and you're doing good. Mm-hmm. And I'm all, and when I see that, that lets me know that I can do good and that right. we can do good together and we can, you know, we can leave a mark in this world that not like, oh, that was the biggest, baddest person in the world that, you know, yeah, he was cool. He carried a gun because that's, it's not cool. It's just, it sucks. It's, it's stupid. Yeah. You know, I'm probably getting off subject here. I don't know, but. No, 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 you're not at all. This is, this is the good stuff because this is why I do this program. So for myself as a heroin addict for so long, who was homeless, like, I didn't think I like, I felt like I had crossed some invisible line at some point and I had gone too far, you know, and I was too far gone. And so, and I'm assuming you felt that same way. And so what I try to do is share stories of people that felt too far gone that obviously weren't, and not only weren't too far gone, but can come back and give to the world and that we do have something to offer because I think feeling that we have something to offer is one of the ways that helps us sustain sobriety now and so what you're describing right now is your purpose and I kind of want to take this one step further and ask you do you think that if you can look back to who you were in February of 1999 that guy who was still drinking who had just got out the last charge that brought you to the Shakespeare program and the community at San Quentin are you actually grateful for that do you feel like you're better off now than you were before Uh, yeah absolutely you know in a lot of ways yeah because if I would have continued on the path I was going, even though I thought, oh, I got this figured out and I have a plan, that I probably would have ended up in prison doing life or on death row. Right. Because, right. you know, like I was over the top in the things that I did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like either that or I probably would have been in just a state of depression. I would have just been miserable because I hadn't found the happiness inside. You know, I didn't, I hadn't found my value. I thought, okay, this is just who I am. It's like, where you talk about that hopeless state of like, you know, there's no getting back. I've gone so far over the abyss because that was my life. I thought this is the world that I'm in. It's drugs, violence, crime. And anybody who's not in this world, they don't, they have no clue because I'm so far in this world. This is who I am. And what it is, is we start to wear it or I started to wear it. Like this was my armor this was who i am and when you see this you know I've, I've gone over the deep end and it happened in prison too for a long time in prison i was like you know i'm never going to get out because this is who i am i thrive in here I'm good in here you know and i've i've 
I've taken that step into this world. I can't go back to that world. Right, that yeah. world doesn't and, want me. Yeah, and I think for the longest time, I mean, that's what was modeled for you. That was your norm. Do you know what I mean? How do how do we as children, as a 12-year-old, how do you know any different than what you've been shown your whole life? And so I think when you started to really be open to the possibility of something different and the Shakespeare play and going, you know what? F it, I'll be a B. And it was like, <laughs> I'm gonna do something different than I've always done. And you started to feel like this feels weird and it's a little bit scary, but I'm going to do it. And then you saw the results and it felt like, oh, instead of literally and figuratively running from everything, you just dove in and really started to work through it. And it turned into something so beautiful. All right. Thank you. What does, what does recovery look like in prison? Because I remember when you and I spoke on the phone, you had mentioned to me that you did do step work that you, that you did 12 steps yeah. while you were in there. Do you have a sponsor in prison? Was it a guy on the outside? Like, are there meetings? What does that look like? Mostly in prison, the, the people get sponsors that are also on the yard with them. That is somebody that's been going to 12 step programs a little bit longer will step in and be a sponsor. On lower okay. level, it didn't happen as much. It was usually when there were lifers involved that lifers would guys doing life in prison would step up and be the sponsor for somebody who wasn't doing life in prison and in that case they got to give back a little bit knowing that they may not be going home for a really long time so oh, they wow. would they would be the sponsor because they were doing the work to get home because there were a lot of lifers that were in 12 set programs in there more so than people that were doing non-life sentences and uh so yeah, you know that's that's how it would really work out. It's that people would step in and almost like create like a mock real world experience to where they would go sit on the yard and they would work through the steps. Sometimes even like when I did NA and A when I was a kid on the streets, it wasn't that in depth as it is in prison. To where people would actually go sit in groups and actually do step work and go through the steps, go through step one, through step two, all the way to the twelfth step, and then start and repeat the process again. So that they knew, you know, they knew it, you know, forward and backwards of what the steps were and how it, they could apply it to their own lives. Oh, that's really cool. So it would be people doing life, sponsoring guys, not doing life. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. You know, wow. and it's their way of giving back because a lot of people in there doing life, you know, that usually it's behind one instance, you know, it was a moment of passion that just turned in, you know, to a reactive moment and you know it resulted usually in somebody either dying or getting hurt really bad and somebody else having to go to prison forever and so when they go in there that's how they can give back and almost you know kind of atone for the actions that they did in the past is by you know putting themselves full board into it you know and that's not every not everybody did that a lot of right. a lot of recovery in prison is kind of forced recovery that mm -hmm. they would go in say i go in and they go oh you you had a drug history they'll do this they have like this blanket form that they go down and they ask people questions like, did your parents do drugs or, you know, what age were you when you first got in trouble? Did you drink? Did you smoke? You know, just all the, the basic questions that go along with that. And then they'd be like, oh, you're a drug addict. So we're going to force you to go to a SAP program, which, you know, honestly, a lot of those programs are there a joke because mm -hmm. you go in there and it's just sitting there and, you know, the counselors, you know, they took like a six week online course. And they're like, oh, you know, you do drugs and, you know, let's talk about this. And they don't really go in depth. And it's kind of hard to get in depth to somebody's addiction when you're sitting in a group with 40 other guys. That yeah. Are, you know, but so that, I hope that answers the question. 
Yeah, no, that totally does. So they have meetings in there and you guys do step work. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's definitely what, what we wanted to know. And then you don't have to answer this. I don't know if you can answer this. And if you can't, don't. How in the shit did that much dope get into prison where you could shoot up every day for eight years? And you do not <laughs> well, have to I'm... answer that question. And I'll cut this whole part out of the show. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, th there's so many different routes, you know, that it's like, you know, I don't really want to put it too much out there because okay. I still know a lot of people in prison and, okay. you know, I, you know, I don't want to get myself in trouble either, but you know, right. it's like, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think they have documented cases of how it comes in a lot of the times, you know, through either okay. staff, staff, you know, or usually it's, you know, no offense to women, but it's sometimes it's women that maybe have low self-esteem that fall victim to somebody preying upon that low self-esteem and uh, manipulating them. And then yeah. other times it's, it's comes through the prison safe. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You know I was just curious about is, that. Right? Yeah. You just bring it in in your, in your booty. <laughs> yeah. It's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I brought, yeah. I brought dope across the border from Mexico a couple of times. So, you know, you got to sort of, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it, those are the lows we'll go to, you know, right. in our business, just to, to get high or to make money or whatever. For sure. I was just curious myself more than anything. I was like, wait, what the, that's a lot of fucking dope we're talking about, you yeah. know, rigs and shit. Like, how is that going in? That's crazy. Are conjugal visits a thing? And do you have to be married to have them? You, you have to be married to get conjugal visits. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of cool now because I have some friends that are, are LWAPs that are like, they have no chance of ever coming home. It's not even on the table. And for years they couldn't get them because they'd taken away from them. And now they get them again. And okay. I have a friend that he did, he did like 30 years in the shoe and he got <laughs> out like, yeah. And he hadn't, he hadn't touched his wife or kissed her in 30 something years and he gets oh family visits now. So it's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. The, the conjugal visits, you have to be married. It's a mandatory, you know? Uh, yeah. So as you were in prison for 22 years, what has it been like being out? Cause you've been out for about, is it four or five months? About four months now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I like, mean that transition must be crazy. Like, what is that like 22 years and then you're out? I, I mean, there's moments where that I have, but for the most part, I've taken it pretty good. And it's funny you should ask that because I had some friends that just said, they just commented on this to me. They go, as you don't seem like you've been in prison for 22 years. <laughs> They're like, you seem like maybe you went to prison a long time ago, but you're really positive and upbeat. And I go, and I go, the reason is, is one, I planned for this. You know, when I got sober, it was like, I was planning for the day that I would get released. Mm -hmm. From that day, I was like, I, when I get out in the world, I want to reclaim my life. I want to live and be as again. Mm -hmm. And so every day that, you know, I would plan and I would tell myself, I'd be like, look, it's not going to be easy. There are going to be hardships. But look at those hardships that those are stepping stones to my ultimate goal, which is a successful life for me. You know, just a happy mm -hmm. life, because that's how my, I judge success now. It's not, I don't need money or anything. It's to just be comfortable and happy and go, look, I'm in the real world free. The sun's shining on my face. You know, I can pet a dog if I want a dog, you know, mm -hmm. I can go get a burrito if I want a burrito. And it's like, that's the world. So I prepared for that. Mm -hmm. And there are hard times because I've had some, like, I remember, like, I'm not allowed to drive on this program. Mm -hmm. I have to take public transportation. And so 
I had asked somebody in downtown San Diego for directions and the way that they looked at me and talked to me, my instantly, my mentality, mm -hmm. I can throat punch this guy and dip him into a trash can and be walking away before anybody mm -hmm. sees me. And I was like, but you can't do that. And I'm not going to do that. But I was like, man, this guy's really disrespectful to me. And I just say, sir, can you point me in the right direction? And he's like, oh, you know, who are you? And I was like, dude, like, you know, why are you talking to me like this? And I was like, I, in my head, I, I can snap and react really fast and I can deal mm -hmm. with this problem. But that, you know, I've been preparing myself. For right. Yeah. This is going, you know, that's not how I want to react. So I was just like, okay, you know, maybe this dude had a bad day. You know, or maybe he's just an yeah. asshole. You know, it doesn't matter. Right. It's insignificant in my life. And I go, I'll find my way. Thank you. You know, thank you, sir. You know, I have this cell phone that tells me that I'm trying to figure out. But back to the original question, it's for me, it's like the transition is the world moves a little bit faster, but in a lot of aspects, it's still the same. Yeah. And I came out here and it's like, I go, man, you know, it seems to me I've come out into a crazy time with COVID and, you know, the mm -hmm. whole political mm -hmm. crap that was going on that a lot of people out here are having a worse time than I had in there. Right. And like sometimes I feel like a counselor because they're calling me and asking me, you know, almost to counsel them. And I go like, you know, like, okay, I just did all this time. I really don't know how to counsel you, but it's going to be okay. You know, let me tell yeah. you, I've been in some pretty dark, dark, you know, you know, places and moments in my life. And it's just like, at the end of the day, it's going to be all right. So, you know, just, it's, it's been an adventure, but you know, it's pretty easy. It's pretty cool. Really. Yeah. That's awesome. Now, what about in particular, like technology, because you said you had to have somebody look up your warrant because the internet was new. You yeah. go in 22 years later, there are iPhones, iPads, like we're doing this zoom call right now. Was it weird to get adjusted to the new tech? Sometimes. Yeah. Like again, like, you know, there are a lot of phones in prison. And okay. so I had a phone for the last probably seven years off and on, like maybe the last two years I put the phone up. I told him I, it wasn't worth losing the time because getting caught with a cell phone in prison, uh, you lose 90 days of good time. Okay. And so I was like, I was like, you know, I'm kind of done with that. I don't want to lose that anymore because I'm getting ready to go home. So I learned a little bit of the ins and outs of the cell phone world. Right. Okay. Like the texting. I remember when, my silly first brought a cell phone in and I would call because I was like, what's texting, dude? You know, that, I'm not, that, that seems stupid to me. And we had a conversation and I go, why do you text? Why don't you call? It seems more personal. He goes, no, texting is more personal. He goes, as nobody <laughs> calls anybody anymore. And I was like, all right. And then after like a week, I was like, hey, can you show me how to do that? Because nobody's really responding to my phone call. <laughs> so he showed me how to text. And I remember at first I was like, almost picking like on a typewriter with one finger. <laughs> and then after a couple weeks of that, it's, it's, you know, I, I think as humans, we have the ability to adapt that sometimes we're afraid of technology mm -hmm. because, Oh, we don't understand it. And it's something new, but once we start, we pick it up pretty quick. Cause I've seen a lot of old people that are good at it. And right. back to the story, it was after two weeks, I was texting like a 17 year old girl. I can be talking <laughs> looking with my thumb be texting. And then, so I picked up on that, but, coming out and seeing so much technology that it's a little intimidating because somebody had gotten me up. They ha I have a laptop and I still can't figure it out. I'm like, I'll go on Google and I'll be like, yes, just follow these steps. And then I can link my phone to this, or I can do this and I do it. And it just comes back. No, you can't do this. Yeah. And I want, I'm like, you know, the old, I'm like the young kid with the Nintendo. I just want to throw it across the room and be done with it. <laughs> like, I'm cool. 
as you mentioned that um, you were preparing, you know, because you knew you were going to get out. How hard when you were actually out was it to implement some of the things? Like you said, you you just asked that guy for directions, and in you know in prison and in juvenile hall and in jail, there's these like anger management classes and how do we ask for things assertively and not aggressively? But when you're actually in a situation where you're faced with like someone who, like you said, is being an asshole or is being judgmental or whatever it is, how do you implement the stuff? Because like you said, you had that split second of, I could punch this guy right now. How do you implement the things in real life situations um, without kind of reverting back to old habits and old ways of thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think it's having gone through some of the classes in prison and, you know, learning some of the tools, because I'm a firm believer that no class is like, you know, the definitive answer to any, you know, situation we're going to face in life, right. but I could learn certain tools. So in that, it was, I, I think, relying on some of the tools that I learned, like I learned in the anger management class, which I thought most of the anger management class I went to was total utter crap. Right. Mm -hmm. It made me more yeah. mad than anything because people didn't take it serious. And, you know, it was just, it was like, yeah, a lot of stuff isn't going to really work in, you know, in a tense situation. But I did learn that I could step back when I was getting angry and mm -hmm. replay the tape in my head of why I was feeling that way. So like in that situation where I asked the directions and this guy got, you know, yeah, that tape, the first tape that played was like, oh, really? I'll show you, you know, you want to mm -hmm. be respectful. But I could step back, take that split second, you know, to reevaluate what was playing in my head and go like, well, maybe this guy had a bad day or maybe he's just a jerk, you know, but the end of this tape, I don't have to react to his actions. I can right. be like, okay, I'm going to go on my path. I'll find my own way, you know, mm -hmm. and it was funny because I don't go talk to cops. That's why I went and asked. I went and asked one of the transit <laughs> cops. He was super cool. But you know, it's learning those little tools like that. It's like those decisions. Yeah, they 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 come really fast, but mm -hmm. at the same time, it's split seconds that I can step back and go and reevaluate. You know, I don't need to react. I, I don't know if that's answering your question. No, it definitely does. I think that that's so cool because a lot of the things, you know, like you said, the programs can be. I don't know. They're kind of. I don't even know what word I want to use, but it feels like it's not, that's not a realistic option, but that is what's so cool is in the past, you maybe thought my only option is to like show this guy that he's not going to talk to me that way. And then you thought, you know what, there's actually something else I can do. And that's so much what about programming and treatment and therapy is, is increasing our options. So we go, I could do that. I could punch him out, but that also isn't going to serve me in the long run. So it's cool yeah. that you're able to go, ah, I'm just going to step back and choose something different than I would have normally chosen. And learning to weigh consequences, you know, mm -hmm. every action, you know, there's, there's a consequence. It could be positive. It could be negative, but, mm -hmm. you know, and I was just like, if I punch this guy, you know, there's cameras everywhere. I could be seen. I could go to jail. Plus I could hurt him, you know, and, you know, maybe right. he's having a bad day and doesn't really deserve that, you know, like, and who am I to, you know, pass the judgment that, oh, I could punch this guy. It's just so, you know, it's just like all those little tools, they help, you know? Yeah. So speaking of that, what happened with the baseball bat case? What happened to that guy? He's but he lived. Hard. Oh yeah, he lived. Yeah, he lived. Okay, that's my question. He testified against me and everything. Okay. You know, I mean, I mean, I don't fault him. I, I do a right. little bit because we grew up <laughs> together, and he was supposed to be like in the same world I was in, and mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, he recovered, fully recovered. You know, okay. he, he continued in his addiction. 
a lot of people told him like, hey, you know, he didn't have to to testify against Daz, you know, which, but, uh, you know, I feel, you know, I, honest truth, I can't, I don't feel bad for him. You know what I mean? Not, I shouldn't have hit him. I do feel bad about that. I shouldn't have hit right. him. But I don't feel bad that he was ostracized because, you know, I believe that though we change when we live a certain lifestyle and we embrace a code in that lifestyle, mm-hmm. that we should hold on to that code as far as like, he had come at me with the bat and if he would have hit me with the bat i wouldn't have testified against him i would have told him we can we'll fix this in our own way you know right. which yeah it's wrong and you know i don't want to promote that for anybody but for myself it was like you know yeah you don't come and hang out with everybody and act like it's all cool when you know i was looking at 107 years to life at that time and you you came into court and acted innocent and it was like no you weren't innocent you brought the bat yeah. Yeah, no, I understand that. But I mean, he's living his life. You know, I I don't know how well his life is, you know, but I do know that a lot of people that he grew up with will have nothing to do with him anymore. Yeah, because of that, because of testifying? That and just because, like I said, he continued in his addiction and like, he's like really, really like, you know, his addiction is, you know, he's one of those ones that, you know, he uses everybody around him and plays the victim. And, you know, he's an addict, you know, and he could use help. But Mm -hmm. a lot of people just, you know, they're like, yeah, we don't want nothing to do with him. Okay. And then you said you you just had your first week of work. What are you doing for work? What's your job? Well, I'm a welder, right? And I'm working at a place in El Cajon building their, like, automated computerized drying systems Mm -hmm. for uh, any any type of spray-on application so that... And it's cool. It was her first job. It was pretty cool. And uh, the people are super cool. It's a, you know, I really like it that they have a gym there, which is awesome. So yeah. during my lunch break, I can work out and uh, I'm doing that. And then uh, I've also been just like pursuing some of my entrepreneurial, like, you know, dreams and talking to a couple uh, venture capitalists about some stuff. Like and, what? Can you tell us? Yeah, like in prison, like I, I had the opportunity, I talked about last time to go to a group called The Last Mile, and I'm mm-hmm. still alumni of that, and they've been reaching out to me because they do a lot of uh, work with getting people back into society mm-hmm. and uh, the reentry aspect of it. And so through that group, they taught me how to, you know, to like create business plans to go and ask people to invest in that. And it's kind of hard right now because I have to develop capital, but some of the ideas, like the one that I pitched to him is a thing called foils that just sitting in the day room one day, I noticed that ceiling fans only really push air down and not really outward. The the distribution of air is very minimal. Mm -hmm. And I would see these guys that were sitting at tables and one table's cool and the other table is hot. So I go, I could fix that. And I went and I drew up this little design of, something that people could buy and actually clip to the edge of a ceiling fan. So then when it turned, it was scooping air and distributing air out to the sides and making the airflow a little bit more intense. That's, That's cool. cool. That's awesome. I got That's a whole really book. Cool. <laughs> don't share them all. Ask. Yeah, don't share them all. I don't want anybody stealing your ideas from the podcast. So did you learn, um, like, are there options to learn different trades and skills that are employable while you're in prison and and how does that kind of play out yeah they have a lot of opportunities but you have to really seek them out because they'll place people into the vocations that don't want to be there Mm -hmm. and they don't really get anything but there are a lot of people that 
they have college. Like I got to, you know, I got to do college and, you know, I'm still, mm -hmm. I'm chasing that too, because I'm supposed to start state in August, which is cool. And That's then, amazing. San Diego state. Yeah. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. That's so cool. But so, and Rachel helped me out with that. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And, but so they, they have, you know, pretty much all of the, the building trades, like welding, uh, mm -hmm. carpentry, electrical, and, you know, there are a lot of people that have benefited from those. Like I, you know, I was getting into welding right before I went because I wanted to be an underwater welder was my dream. So like mm -hmm. I wanted to weld and I had some weird, crazy dream. I wanted to go to uh, Borneo and see the orangutans. I don't know what it was. I just wanted to be in the jungle and see the orangutans. I thought they were cool. <laughs> but so when I went in there, I had started welding, but then I, I took a welding vocational class in prison and, you know, I turned that into, you know what I mean? Like, I became a teacher's assistant, was helping to teach people welding in there. And then I started welding and building like big, uh, uh, large, large equipment for Caltrans. And so it was cool, but they have that, that college. And then again, with the technology, like I didn't really touch on that, but I got into a group called the last mile and they started a vocational class in there. It was, it's still going, it's teaching inmates, uh, how to be computer programmers. Oh, okay. Yeah. And a lot of people from that program, when they get out, like, I have a friend that works for Pandora, another one that uh, he went to Hack Reactor. He worked, I think he works for Hack Reactor. They're like boot camps, uh, coding boot camps. And these are all guys that were ex-felons. Some of them were lifers, you know, that, that are doing really well. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. A good, like you said, you had all these programs and then you're more ready because you engaged them while you were in there when you get out to be a part of society and be, you know, successful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, you know, and they had all like, the barber one they started one when i was up north it was a culinary arts one mm -hmm. and they'd have these like just top super chefs come in and teach people to cook and then when they graduated the class they got like a new set of knives an apron oh, a hat and pretty much that job placement in some of these restaurants in san francisco that were really yeah. really you know, upscale and just you know, bomb cuisine that's yeah. awesome that's incredible i also wanted to ask you about so you were talking about, you wrote something called The Rise of the Phoenix while you were in prison. Did you yeah, write a, that? Yeah, I wrote it. It was, a, it was a play. It's called a parallel play. I could, I could send you the link and you could watch it, but you have, you have to like go, it's like an hour and something into the actual parallel plays. It was through, yeah, because I, I write too. Like that was like, when I was a young kid, that was my dream was to write screenplays, not books, but screenplays. And like, you know, I got, I was really lucky. I had a teacher in school whose son wrote Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And so oh, he cool. took me out one day and he, he pulled me out and he goes like, hey, we went out to lunch and he was just telling me about it. And I was like, oh, dude, this is just like a rad business, put stories on paper that people can actually see. And so I, you know, I did a lot of that in prison, but the first thing, like, or the first time I got to actually see it in like physical form was I wrote a parallel play called The Rise of the Phoenix, which is a new story about my story and going to mm -hmm. prison and then being manipulated into like oh we want you to like run this for us you know just for the yard and then just how the power corrupts and then how the outlet was through heroin yeah, yeah. wow i do want that link okay. and we'll include it in our show notes so that the audience can watch it too i'll, I'll put that somewhere because i'm fascinated by that i really want to watch that and, and see you know how you crafted that who acted in the play it was me. Uh, it was all people like players in the Marine Shakespeare. 
company. Some of the ladies that volunteered came, like one of the ladies, I think her name was Karen. Might not be Karen, but she played my mom. And then, and then, you know, it was just, it was a mix of people, you know, really diverse mix of people that were in in the Marine Shakespeare program. Again, when you go to, you have to kind of like go through the whole thing. Like you can fast forward it or watch the whole thing. Because what it is, is that it's all stories written by the men that were in the Marine Shakespeare Company, San Quentin. And it's their stories and how themes from the Julius Caesar or, you know, whatever plays we're doing play into their life. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of like, you know, that have to do with like inner city violence or uh, home, child abuse in the home and stuff. And then mine was just the right, it was like my story of like mm-hmm. my prison experience. That's really cool. I definitely want to include that for people. Yeah. One of the things that we always ask our guests to is uh do you work out and if you do, do okay do you think that that's part does that help your sobriety and your state of mind we always like to check I'm, in with absolutely because you know a strong body is you know is a temple for a strong mind and you know like exercise it just you know it just it, it makes you feel good it builds this self-esteem you know it yeah. builds a positive ego and uh you know, it gives you an outlet too. That when things start to build up and the pressure, if you go work out, you just feel better after it. You know, and there yeah, are days when you're absolutely. like, oh, I don't like doing it. You know, uh, man, you know, I just I need a little pick me up. You know, because I'm feeling down. But then you go work out. When you're done, you're like, okay, I accomplished something, and now I have energy. Right. And I'm ready <laughs> to take on the role. Right. Right. And then something we always ask also is, so this gets played like at Rachel's rehab where she works and some other rehabs. If somebody was listening to this. When they have like 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, they just got clean and sober. Do you have something like an actionable piece of advice or like a tip that they could start doing that would help them now? Yeah, I mean, I I hope because it's what worked for me. And I I talked about it earlier where it was the, the moment that I decided to stop and I remember in India, they would always talk about self affirmation, you know, and they have that book of daily affirmations. And mine was no, it's like, just go into the bathroom, shut the door with nobody there and just look in the mirror and have a conversation with yourself. Because when I actually looked at myself and saw the person, as crazy sounds, but let myself talk back to me and just like, you know, who are you? You know, where do you want to go? Is this, are you truly happy? Like, is this what what you wanted to be in your life? And just all those questions that, you know, they run through our head, but sometimes we don't stop pause enough to listen to the questions. And it was to just have those daily conversations with yourself, like, okay, because they say one day at a time and it start right there in the morning. It's like, as I was like, as, you know, look at yourself. Are you happy? Look at the reflection and because that's you. It's like, so nobody else can see me the way I see me. Yeah. And so I, you know, that's my, that's what the advice I would give. It's just like, stop, pause for a minute, find that, you know, that little, you know, sanctuary in the bathroom with a mirror and just talk to yourself and, you know, like go and then and boost yourself up. Like, Hey, you can do it. You know, you got this. It's like, you know, it might be hard, but you know what? I can get through it today. You know, and awesome. the next day when you have the conversation with yourself, you know, okay, I got through it yesterday. It's a little bit hard, hard today too, but you know, I can get through it. And then pretty soon you're going like, Hey dude, you got it. You yeah. did it. You know, And it's to just never forget where you came from. You know, never, yeah. that that's the thing because I've known a lot of people that have gone through 12-step programs, you know, uh, 
uh, substance abuse programs, things like that, and they get clean for a while, you know, or they get out and they're like, oh, I got this idea, but they forgot where they came from. They forgot who yeah. they were, you know, yeah. and it's like, no, it's like, okay, I was that person that was in prison. I was that person that was running around doing stuff, you know, and getting in all this trouble. I was that person sticking the needle in my arm. I was that. It's yeah. never going away because it's, it's right. always there. It's a part of me, but it's not who I am today, but it's still yeah. there. Right. So, you know, that would be my advice. Just look in the mirror and just, you know, be honest with yourself, you know, because that's what I do. You know, I still do. It's like, yeah, so you are, what do you want to do? You know, set a path and be like, you know, talk yourself through it. Okay. Cool. Thank you so much. All right, well, thank you. Okay. Um, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks a lot. Right, cool. I appreciate it so, so much.